collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Erica, good morning to you. Thank you for being here on Collective Power. Um, really uh, excited to have you. Uh, you're kind of one of those people who fell from the heavens. It's just like somehow people just come to me when I reach out. And uh, I have a feeling this is going to be a really phenomenal conversation. So thank you for being here. So this week, we're starting out looking at housing systems. And so I invited you for a few reasons. One, you're a housing activist. And two, uh, although I didn't know this at the time, uh, you also have like a personal experience that uh, you're open to sharing. So I just want to frame for a second why we chose housing systems. It's because the way the COVID funding is being released has a lot of protections for landlords, but not a lot of protections for renters. And so there's a lot about our current situation around COVID uh, that is impacting people in their housing. So this is why we thought it was really important to cover housing this month. So Erica, good morning. Tell us a little bit kind of about like who you are in the world, what you love, what you're passionate about. Just give us a feel for kind of who you are. Cool. So my name is Erica Lynette Stewart. I'm 32 years old. Um, my birthday's coming up in June. I'm really looking forward to that. Spending some time with my friends um, and my family that I haven't been able to spend time with lately. Things about me, I love anybody and everybody. Um, I don't need to know you for me to show you love. Um, and I feel like I can make humor out of anything and everything. Sometimes at the wrong times, but it can bring a sense of laughter at a bad time um, when some people need that. Thank you for that. And you're a housing activist. So tell us what you do. I think some people don't really know what activists do. What is it that you do? What keeps up your days? I start every day in prayer. I start every day thanking God that, um, that the things that he's provided me with, I'm allowed to have because basically like the experiences that I've endured as just as a 32 year old woman, I have to only thank him. So my day starts with going out and just, you know, getting coffee. And if I'm at a coffee shop and I see someone, you know, that might need an extra dollar, I'm not a person that's going to hesitate. I'm going to be that person to go ahead and give them that dollar, you know, to give them an encouraging word for that day. At the same time, it starts with being honest and being visible and being transparent. So I'm very intentional about everything that I do on my way to work, City Hall each day. I make sure I take the same route so I can see the same folks see the trends of what's going on up and down Broad Street. 
I'm blessed to live in Mount Airy, so it's a good 25, 35-minute ride, but it gives you um, a sense of what's going on and the temperature of the environment every day um, so that I can make suggestions when we're in the office or when we're uh, planning events. Tell us what made you passionate about housing? What made me passionate about housing is moving yeah. 19 times and like I said, I'm 32 years old. So the first time I moved, I was 18 years old. Um, and it wasn't like the move where, like, you have a trunk party and you look forward to starting that process. Uh, my mother and I were going through some turmoil and some, uh, some rough times. And she and I weren't seeing eye to eye as a child and as a mother. So I transitioned on and started moving on my own. First time I moved, it was nice. I lived in Germantown off of... Winston Hicken, right by the train station. So it was nice. It was something I looked forward to. Um, I was working two jobs at that time. I was a certified HIV tester as well as an early intervention counselor. So I was, like, happy. I was ingrained in the work that I wanted to do. It was new. Um, and it gave me things to look forward to. The next spot I moved to, I just wanted a little bit more space. So, like, the first couple of times I moved, it was cool. It was like, all right, every year you should get a new spot and try to get bigger and bigger started happening was I started interacting with people that didn't have the same lifestyle and the same quality of life that I was used to coming from on area, coming from a family where those, maybe those last two years of my teenage years were rough, but having like a certain quality of lifestyle, going to summer camp, going to basketball camps, my mom invested her entire life in me. So hanging around folks who didn't have that same quality of life, I started doing things I had no business doing. So maybe missing a bill here and there because I wanted to buy a pair of sneakers. Maybe um, wanting to take somebody out to go do something or hanging out, just being a a 21-year-old or 22-year-old. But because I felt like I was thrown out in the world, that was always my battle was, well, I didn't didn't have this, so this is what's going on. Um, and, And I always made excuses. And what I started seeing was this pattern of just moving, just like, like just, transient just moving and just being okay with it but I always had an opportunity to like hustle do a couple things very talented and save money and move but as it started becoming more and more I would say crisis oriented where a landlord may get involved or it would be a domestic abuse situation I've experienced that as well those were not fun times to move in and out on my own and being by myself and being the only child And not having folks to say, hey, I need help, or hey, I'm going through this. I just mustered a lot of it because I just had myself. And like I said, my mom and I weren't on speaking terms for a good amount of time. So I just became very, like, lonesome and just started making bad decisions. Yeah, thank you for that. What do you think are the misperceptions people have of what it's like to have in stable housing or even become homeless? Like, what are the assumptions people make who've never been through it? The assumptions are that it has to do with how much money you have. Um, I believe it starts with behaviors and understanding that the relationship between a tenant and a landlord is a legal relationship. And there's a certain way that you go about um, when you have complaints, when you have concerns. At the same time, money does also play a part when you want to make a choice and say, hey, I want to live somewhere. So right now, I'm renting an apartment. I like my apartment, but I would like more space for my books and just to be able to entertain company. 
And as I look for apartments throughout the city, based on what my income is, I would only be able to get an apartment for maybe $765. And then I start thinking about what things I want in my neighborhood, maybe a, a market and walking distance, uh, maybe a rec center or a gym, and trying to put those different personal care needs and those picking choices is very slim picking. And it's disturbing when I'm a person that's moved 19 times and I've never had a problem picking somewhere to live at or it being a financial stressor. And now how I see housing market is going, the cost of rent. My concern is for folks who have children, where you have to make sure that at a certain age, your girls and your boys can't be in a room together. At a certain age, they need this space. And if, you know, extra rooms won't cost you an extra hundred or extra hundred and twenty five dollars. That's where a lot of these interactions with systems come in at, whether it's DHS, whether it's having to work with them coming into your home, whether it's them invading privacy, anything that, you know, as a parent, you feel like you're doing a good job at. When someone counter counteracts it, you're going to be defensive. But when you're doing the best you can and it's like you work, you do what you're supposed to do, not having adequate housing for yourself or for your little ones, it becomes a higher priority over everything. Everyone deserves to have housing. I'm going to take a step back for a second because I think you said something really important that in particular, like middle class, I'm going to like voice white folk here since I'm white, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Although it's not only white folk, but it doesn't matter. But there's an assumption we make that if you have less money, you shouldn't have a choice. Like you shouldn't have other preferences, Right. It's like you just need a house. Just get a house. And and part of what I hear you saying is that part of what makes it so complex, especially like Philly's affordable housing market is horrible. Right. And part of what makes it horrible is that you are a full human being with a bunch of other priorities. And so finding something that is affordable and in one's price range with the other things that are important. Right be that a rec center, like you were saying, right? Or being it being able to walk to the bus or like that often is what makes affordable housing a nightmare is because you are trying, just like any other person who's looking for a house, you're trying to piece together a number of priorities. And some of them you'll get satisfied and some you won't, but there are slim pickings as to, especially if I think about North Philly, right? There are slim pickings as to the number of houses that are actually well-maintained, who also are placed inside of that mosaic. I just wanted to like highlight that because I think that's really important. I think it's an assumption a lot of us make. And I can see myself having made that assumption as well. And the other that like you're saying now, which is also like super important, is that when systems come into your life, right? Like as can be the child welfare system or, you know, even a welfare to work program, right? When systems are part of your life and they're generally part of the lives of people of poor folk more than of middle class and upper folk, those systems have requirements of their own. So they're basically adding to the mosaic of your personal preferences a bunch of other requirements that aren't that uh, flexible. And so at that point, like finding a house becomes a nightmare. Right. And even a person applying for apartment 35 bucks you might get it you might not you get it and then they also have the right to check your background your criminal background we fight with that on an everyday basis to get a job 
let alone a roof over my head, right? So I'm blessed to not have a criminal record. But what if I'm a person in recovery? They talk about that on applications for housing. So I think that when we look at public houses, private housing, I think that it should be looked at as housing for all. And it has to be like an umbrella of what that housing looks like. There has to be a standard of what a landlord in Philadelphia is expected to do. And yes, every neighborhood, every city has slum landlords. But I think that when we think about the demographics of how many folks are sleeping outside every single night through all four seasons, but you can drive and see all these different homes that are boarded up, if there's a conversation that's happening between landlords, the city who owns it, and this could be any city, and the folks who need the housing, you'd be surprised with what they would ask. A lot of them just want somewhere to sleep at. They don't want a stove. They don't want a bathroom. Of course, you need a bathroom to utilize a toilet, but they're not looking at it from the hygiene point of view. They're looking at, I just want my basic needs met. And when we start building new systems, what does affordable housing look like? Is it $33 a day? Is it $22 a day? Like, What does that look like as we build these new systems and we acknowledge that a group of people who can't speak up for themselves? We're going to go there in a second, right? I want to take a step back. Like, you just said something. See, so I get this because I've seen it, but not everyone will get this. So I want to just like lift it up a little bit more. For some people, having a bathroom is actually not a priority. No. It's not the first. So when no. we talked about a plethora of choices, like having a bathroom, <laughs> which for most people is essential. Mm-hmm. for some isn't tell me a little bit more about that because i think that's like really groundbreaking thing you just said for a lot of, i think a lot of people can't conceive of living without a bathroom okay so let's start here what is a bathroom consist of a bathroom consists of a sink a toilet um you need some type of airflow um you also need electrical socket so those are the guidelines written by the city by license and inspection of what a bathroom consists of. So in my 15 years of working with different families and different folks, I've experienced bathrooms that just may not be clean, right? But I personally, it's one of those things where transparency is important, right? So I used to live at 56 in Cedar. That was one of the addresses out of the 19 that I lived at. I was like in a relationship with somebody and we had kids. Um, they welcomed us to stay with them. We were going through something. And they kept saying they were getting the house fixed up. So the living room, the floors had just been, the carpets had just been pulled up. So it still had the nails in there. So you didn't have the luxury of like walking around with, with your shoes off. You always had to have your shoes on in the house, right? You go upstairs. You realize that the rooms that are connected side by side, the three-bedroom home in West Philly, that there's no wall in between each one of these rooms because the sheetrock is falling apart. So there's adults in one room, there's kids in another room. And then when you go to use the bathroom, this is all like on the first day of us going there and realizing, I know that this is not safe and I know it's not what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we didn't have a bathtub. So we definitely did the the sink and the water. We definitely did the boiling of water. We definitely did a microwave in the water. I've done that part. But being in a bathtub that's not secured to a floor, as that process is going on, you buy a bathtub, you get it put in, 
and trying to take a bath where you don't know if you're going to fall out, if the floor is going to fall in. So it felt like I was accepting to live in an abandonment because that's the epitome of what it was. I would have never knew that until like I came out of that situation and talked to people and kind of had like maybe a humorous side to calling it abandonment. But it definitely it wasn't abandonment. Like, yeah, abandonment. Wow. That's what they call like the condos that uh folks live in it. They don't really own or they don't really pay rent for, but it's shelter. It's shelter. That's what's important is that we know that there's a hierarchy of needs and we know that people need shelter. People need water. In that time, I was still young. I was like 22. The relationship since was stay together, don't separate. But as I started seeing my quality of life changing, never in a thousand years did I ever think that I would take a bath in a tub that was not secured to a floor and it wasn't a wall next to it. And it's like, what have you gotten yourself into it? So that's where I talk about the behaviors and knowing like what you should expect for yourself on a day-to-day basis. And that's not something that I wanted for myself. So from that point on, I had to move somewhere else. I can say that was one of the worst places that I've ever lived. The ceiling wasn't intact. Every time it rained, water would be on my face. That's how I would know it was raining outside. So that one house was one of those places on that list that it wasn't a happy move, not one bit. Yeah. Were you guys paying rent in that place? So the crazy thing is we were paying rent, and we were paying rent because they were supposed to be getting these different things done. How much was the rent? It was about $300, $300 a month, and that was for one room for an adult and then, like, space for one of the kids to sleep. So, and another thing that I want to point out here is, like, I've been to houses in North Philly with no toilets. Mm -hmm. Like, I've literally seen a house where two families lived and uh, there was no toilet. They basically peed in the shower, Mm -hmm. went to McDonald's for everything else. That's a reality for some folks. It is. It's an awful sight because what you're saying, right, which... If I reflect on myself, right, for a second, like, I think when I walked in that house, like, I was interviewing one of the moms for my book, and I remember having, a, like, a first experience of, like, disgust, right, which is probably a typical, like, middle, upper class <laughs> response to poverty, but, like, I love what you're saying, because I think part of the disgust is just, like, I want more for you. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I want more for this person. I want more for their family. I want more. And what you were saying is like there are all these little compromises that you do day in and day out to survive. Right. Like you were saying, like you're in this bathtub and you're like, what the hell? Like. I cannot trust this wall right now. Right. You talk about uncertainty. Right. Like white folk woke up yesterday and got uncertain because of covid. You're literally saying you're in a bathtub and you're like, I can't trust this wall right now. What am right. I doing if to myself? Knows me, like, if anybody knows me, they know that like I'm a stocky person. So it's not like if I fall, I <laughs> fall. Like if yeah. I fall, the tub goes down, the tub goes through the ceiling, the ceiling, oh, and now what? And then I'm still thinking about, so am I still going to have somewhere to live at if I fall? Yeah. So those of us who are uh, roundly endowed... Like, imagine having the fear that we have sitting on an Ikea plastic chair or one of those, like, horrible barbecue chairs that are all plastic. Like, a lot of us have been through that, right? It's like, this chair Mm -hmm. can't do, like, I don't know about this chair in my booty. I don't know if this is happening, right? Having that feeling when you're in a bathtub. 
Like, yeah. oh my God, the ceiling could literally fall through here. Right. And what are the compromises that we have to make to ourselves when like we are forced because people who like, I'm sure when you lived in that moment, right, you wanted better for yourself. Of right. course you did. You always did. But there were priorities that had to come first until you were like, okay, enough of this. That's correct. So we're going to come back to systems in a second, but I'd like to ask you a couple more things about like your personal experience. So my question, have you been homeless yourself? Homeless, yes. It's more of not stable, not safe. Am I going to be able to stay here tomorrow? Sense of homeless. I have not had to sleep outside. And I think that that is only by the grace of God. Because the person that's moving 19 times, whether it's by choice or by choice, because everybody has a choice, that the behaviors that I learned at that point in time were definitely behaviors of someone who was experiencing homelessness. So I have a friend who's been homeless and like you, not on the street, but had to go to a shelter. And she's a trauma expert and often talks about it as trauma. Tell us a little bit more about, and I don't know if yours was traumatic or not. I'm not going to make that assumption. Just like you described to us the moment you were right in the bathtub and you're like, what the hell? Could you give us a little bit of an insight into like, what was it like to be you in the moment you were homeless? The moment I became homeless, um, it was a month after my 18th birthday. I was living in Mount Airy with my mom. Um, like I said, she and I weren't, it wasn't a healthy relationship. She got a restraining order against me. Police came, they had their guns out. Basically, me, I had to get my stuff. I had 15 minutes. Um, and I just kept asking them, like, what, what you mean? Like, I ain't got nowhere to go. It's just me and my mom. Like, what you mean? And I just kept saying it and they just didn't really care. It just was like, yo, you gotta get your stuff. You gotta go. So I packed some light clothes and. I, st- I had a job. I had a full-time job at that point in time. I've been working full-time since I was 16. So I walked up to the top of the block where I was living at. It's a fire hydrant right there. Sat down on the fire hydrant, and I just started crying. And I just, you know, didn't know what to do, where to go. Um, the cops pulled up and told me I couldn't sit there. And I asked them where I was supposed to go, and they said they don't know. I shouldn't have hit my mom. A lot of different things was, like, opinionated they could have just gave me straight up answers. Like there's a shelter down the street from my house at Stanton in Washington Lane. They could have told me that because of the work that I do now, I know where the majority of the shelters are throughout the city, but to have, if they would have been knowledgeable, they could have like maybe helped me in that moment. I called somebody that used to be my supervisor at a previous job. And I told them, you know, what was going on, but they also were like a role model to me. And they let me stay with them for like one or two days and I'd like go stay somewhere else. So like that's where the process started was like in those like first 48 to 72 hours of being put out of where I lived at for 18 years with my mom. I didn't meet my dad until I was 25. So in that moment when like the cops came and told me I had to leave and I knew I didn't have anywhere to go, that's when it like began. And then like, when they told me I had to leave from the top of where I lived at, like the block. And I didn't know where I was going to go. And then like crying that whole night 
and just wondering like what I'm supposed to do. And like my relationship with God wasn't anywhere. It was nowhere where it is now. Um, so I just had like a lot of anger, a lot of frustration and I was still a child. Like I just was like confused. And as the days went on, I began to accept, I got to find somewhere to live at. And what do you need to do that? You need money. So I've worked from 16 until 32. Yeah, that's my first experience with homelessness. Yeah, and that day and that night, right, that night that you cried all night. So you were 16 mm-hmm. at that time. How old were you at that point? I was 18 years old. 18. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I had ever, like, spent the night away from home. Wow. Yeah. So from a systems point perspective, right, like going back from the individual and thank you for being willing to share that with us, right? Like mm-hmm. you really put us there and what it was like for you. Mm-hmm. From a systems perspective, right? Like we mentioned this on the political systems right. um, show that because we are a country forged in capitalism, our culture is permeated with this thing that, you know, if you don't provide value, we can throw you away. Correct. Because we have a consumerist approach to people, right? So this moment in which you're 18, right, you made a mistake or you had a reaction. What I hear you saying is like, you know, if only the cops had told me there was a freaking shelter, right? Yep. Like you're not disposable. You're yep. not a mask that you throw, a one-use mask that you throw away because, you know, this thing happened. And the way our society is built is on that principle. Right. Like, if if you're not providing something for me right now, I don't care about you. So going back to systems and kind of what you were saying earlier, which is that, like, everybody, everyone deserves a house. Right? And I'm right there with you. Like, I see housing as a fundamental right, I think we'd be a a lot safer society if every single person had housing. So I'm just curious, like, how does your personal experience that you just shared, right, how does that inform your activism? So what I've done is I've pivoted my place in the world, started my own company. It's a consulting firm called Everyone Loves Someone, where we are a social entrepreneur brand. Anything and everything that we do serves the community. So we have five disciplines, shelter, hygiene, inspiration, nutrition, and education. Those are our five disciplines that we practice on a day-to-day basis. And it's a certain caliber of person to understand those principles and those needs, um, that everyone needs shelter and deserves shelter. Hygiene, we all know self-care makes you a better person. We know it's a proven fact. It's a scientific fact. Inspiration you have to have a reason to thrive. So when I walk into a room, I walk in with a smile. I walk in ready to engage. Because your energy and what you give off is very important um, in different spaces, especially trauma-informed care. You have to understand the temperature of the room and the individuals you're serving, nutrition. Working with folks who have experienced mental health and behavioral health challenges, a lot of times are deficient in just everyday vitamins. So ensuring that when we when I host events or when we have meetings that there are nutritional 
items available, whether it's fresh fruit, we have salad, we have protein, chicken, shrimp, but putting that effort into folks having that expectation that they know they come to an event that the Social Impact Cafe is hosting, that you're going to eat, especially if it's a child. They know that Miss Erica is going to feed them. Erica is going to make sure that they get to and from where they live at or where they're staying at. So those are expectations that are set in advance because of our brand. Um, and then education, understanding that all, that all children do not learn the same. So that's how I bridge myself into the community is having those conversations with stakeholders, whether it could be a restaurant owner, it could be an angel investor, it could be a person um, like myself, a young millennial that's an activist, but also socially and civically engaged. And they're like, hey, I want to do something for the summer. I can connect them to the Work Ready program students that I service through that, could connect them to the different activities we have at the shelters and doing free haircut programs. So when it comes to my activism, I've turned it into basically a way to navigate today's society, but also to not turn a blind eye on our children who are survivors of trauma. So like I'm very intentional. The events that I host, the folks that I have around my children, your background check is clear. That's good clearances are good, but do you understand trauma and do you understand that there's no hierarchy to trauma? Yeah, you can't interact with my kids the same way I am with my own kids. I am the same way with other people's children. I just want to, like, I acknowledge you for being like a powerhouse and being able to channel that original experience, right, and the trauma of it into looking at people as whole human beings because you get from your personal experience how you were a full human being who wasn't treated like a full human being. And I just want to like, let you know that it makes me like really angry. Like I'm really pissed that you were treated the way you were treated. And I'm pissed that we're like, we as a society have enough money rolling around to provide housing to every human being, right? And we also have enough learning, both scientific and personal, to be humane with every human being, independent from our mistakes. So I just wanted to, like, take a moment to say, like, how mad it makes me we, how we treat human beings. Mm-hmm. We all have these same things that we need, and that's why I focus, like, that is my system, is shine, shelter, hygiene, inspiration and nutrition education and that's one of the things that like my mom and I talk about now is like when I get tattoos she's always like you know what's this one for what's that one for I only get tattoos when I overcome something it's like a totem pole it's like acknowledging like my space here on earth and I have a tattoo of a skull um a skull head and she thinks it's the most demonic thing Um, (laughs) but I don't see it as that I see it as your ego and your conscience there are things you know you should not do. You shouldn't people people mean, but your ego is like, but I want to get my point across. So having that balance in the world makes me able to be a steward. In the midst of my name being steward, mm-hmm. I have to invest into my community. I have to sow into my community, but I also have to wait to harvest blessings and like the, the students I'm working with or the families that I'm working with. So it's just like, very, very intentional. That's just important. Let's go to our COVID moment for a second. Like, okay. there's a rent strike happening right now. Right. I'm curious to hear, like, what are your thoughts on that? Or, and, and if you can, like, share a little bit more what it's about. 
So my thoughts on that are from a tenant point of view, definitely have a conversation with your landlord about you can't make your rent or you have not made your rent for April and you need to also have a conversation about May. My landlord was lenient with me. I didn't even have to go to him. So I appreciate, you know, him being proactive about giving me a break. A lot of that comes from the work that I do in the community. So he knows that I'll have like to give him another hundred dollars, but he'll know that I'll go out and buy food for the community. So that's a relationship. And that's why I said about the landlord and the tenant relationship where your biggest priority in life is, you should have a relationship with that person and it should be as healthy as possible. Folks who have been out of work since COVID has been declared an emergency, very crucial for them to sustain their mental stability and their family because landlords have rights as well as tenants. There's legislation being written and being proposed to ensure that the tenants like myself, folks who are just scraping by, folks who, you know, have met their personal goals and personal successes, but because of this all of a sudden change, things are going to impact them. When there's legislation that, that speaks to the right and the basic needs of the people, that's where the collective power lies. Making sure that you voice your opinion and voice your vote. That's very important as we move forward in these next days and these next times that if we want to sustain the housing that we're in, if we're not willing to have a conversation, having elected officials that are willing to have that conversation and are willing to move these chess pieces for these things to get done so people can have sustainable living. We were already at 26% poverty rate. From March until now, or February 12th until now, I know it's double. That's right. And I know it's double because outside of working remotely, still taking constituent calls, our office has been open since we left City Hall. We have not closed. We've worked tirelessly through around the clock. Being involved with different groups that are still serving the community through this crisis, I'm able to have uh, like a firsthand perspective of these families. They are either feeding their children or paying bills or unable to do either one because they're voicing their request for meals on wheels. We have folks that make sure they get to and from work, but they don't have money to eat. They come down to City Hall and eat with us with dope, doing things, doing our part eclectically. So it's important that we see the other soldiers that are out here being selfless because they know the trickle-down effect of what's going to happen with rent strikes and what's going to happen with these different proposed legislation. That the people are going to hurt, but how is it going to hurt? So there are like several resources and places where people can get food and support that you just listed. Do you want to highlight them a little bit more so people know exactly where to go? Oh, most definitely. What we've been doing is just taking in-house requests. So anyone is learning about food resources, and that could be, I need to pick up the lunches from the school, but I don't know what time. Feel free to email me personally, E-R-I-C-K-A, period, Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, at phila.gov. If you have a question about where do I pick these pampers up from, I heard they were giving out wipes, reach out to me. Same email address. And the questions and concerns don't change based on who it's coming from. 
the best thing is that people are honest about what their needs are so that when I'm reaching out on their behalf, I can serve them like they prefer to be served. So if you would like a certain diaper for the baby, I respect that. I'm not going to question it because having experience with babies now, I know you don't buy huggies and pampers and switch them. You pick one and you stick with it. So being like cognizant of these vulnerable populations, folks who reach out, I want to get food, but I'm a vegan. I will take the time to find you somewhere that has vegan food. I will also bring it to you. So those are the things that we work on from our constituent services point of view is high access, low barriers. No, you don't need your ID. No, you don't have to take a picture. No, you don't have to do anything that's going to change you getting this service before you get this service. That's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I just want to highlight, like, homelessness is real for a lot of Philadelphians. So if we look Mm -hmm. at the stats, right, so 15,000 people every, Mm -hmm. like, last year reported having been homeless in Philly at least once. And Mm -hmm. we're a million and a half population-wise, unless that's shifted. Yep, 1.5. So that's 10%. So, like, 10%, one out of 10 people you meet on the street in Philly has been homeless at some point in their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about how the systems are connected, right? So we talked a little bit about criminal justice and homelessness, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about that. You mentioned it through your personal story. We talked about like how homelessness is connected to trauma. You mentioned a little bit around how there's a connection with foster care. And that's like something I'm really passionate about because mm-hmm. there is a study that came out that 50% of children who are in foster care would be able to come home today if their parents had adequate housing. And that's a quarter of a million of children. So 250,000 children nationwide. Like you talked about education a little bit. Like what do you see are the critical connections between housing and other systems based on your personal experience that we should be paying attention to as we organize? Or, I mean, we could put it this way. Like, you were talking about the connection between, like, housing and education, right? Or housing and hygiene. Are there places where, like, you talked about the importance of voting, right? So that's, like, the connection to the political system. What do you think needs to change in our culture for us to be able to make those changes system-wide? So I would definitely say a sense of quality control and quality assurance. So folks who are living in PHA housing and Section 8 housing, like they have a maintenance, like they have a maintenance crew that goes out and secures and like maintains their homes, right? But I think that there should be almost like a redesign of how they implement what is quality and adequate housing and making sure that they're following the guidelines for like the fair housing and good partnership guidelines. Understanding that folks are entitled to a certain quality of life. And I think that like having a perspective of what is Section 8 housing, what is PHA housing, how does this impact people? A person like myself, I never knew what the projects was. I was from Mount Airy. As I moved more and more throughout the city, I began to transparently understand what it means to pay only a dollar for your rent. And I would hear people bragging about it or people laughing and joking about it. But now I see how much rent actually costs, what comes along with it, but also the quality of life. 
so we know that you know in housing projects they're all maybe side by side or they're clustered. I think that an additional approach would be to model that, but in transitional housing, model that in emergency housing, model that in campus living for the students who are 18 to 24 who want to go back to school but don't have anywhere to live at, if their housing was built in a sustainable fashion where it's on-campus on housing, but it is specifically for folks who don't have shelter and they're entitled to free education, you have to combine the systems together. So we know that housing and project development works because it's housing folks. But what does that look like at a 10-year span? What are the stigmas that are associated when you pull into certain neighborhoods and you see that the houses are clustered? You say, oh, this must be the project. What if you change the way that things have already been stigmatized? Like renting rooms. Renting rooms, if you look at it as you rent out somebody's basement, you're renting out somebody's back room. What if there were actually systems in place that there was that turnover rate and that was expected that folks would come there, stay for the night and leave or have long or short-term housing and it would be a voucher program in addition to waiting two or three years in the shelter and being a part of that system and the stigma that's associated with that to wait for Section 8 housing two or three years with your kids. Right. So we need to think about it differently in terms of thinking long term and right. thinking collectively. Right. 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 So and shifting the stigma away from what projects look like. It's really interesting that you talk about that stigma in projects. Like I lived a part of my life in Italy and I talk about Italy a lot. It was a good big part. It was 15 years of my life. Right. When I've had like guests over to my small town, like 3000 people village or town. People are like, what are those houses? I'm like, oh, those are our projects. They're like, mm -hmm. they look nice. I'm like, yeah, call them popular housing instead of public housing. And I'm um, like, yeah, like people live there. They are still more modest than a lot of the private houses, but they're not falling apart. Like there's a commitment and investment to it. And part of what I hear you saying is that one of the reasons that our public housing ends up the way it ends up is because we don't have a long-term framework. I sure. love that you talked about 10-year spans, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm envisioning, you know, a healthy, thriving community 10 years after, like, a housing has opened, right, then I'm going to create something different. Sure. And the other piece you were saying that I love is, like, how do you connect all the other pieces, right? Because mm -hmm. the question is also, like, how do we create housing environments that are also trauma-informed, right, right. or trauma-responsive? Like, how do we build our capacity to... Uh, evolve and shift and heal trauma so that as people are together, mm -hmm. it's not like a bunch of people who already have certain historical trauma, like all getting triggered right. all at once. And then like, there's all that that happens. Right. Right. Um, so long-term frames, I'm a, I've been ranting about this online for a bit, but you know, the fact that our philanthropy system works in uh three to five year, five years is incredible. Our funding terms does not work. Right. right. The fact that we fund stuff three years at a time does not allow most organizations, governments, nonprofits to think in a 10 year span. Yep. And this is a long term game. Thank you for that. So what needs to shift and when it comes to uh, shifting the stigma, I think I want to bring fractals in here for a second, because 
you know, we love to complain about how the government is doing this or that or they're not doing this or that. Like those values survive at the government level because we implement them at the local level. That's correct. Right. So when I walk on the other side of the street because I don't want to walk by a homeless person, like I'm actually supporting a governmental culture of you're not important to me. That's correct. Because you got like something going on. I mean, not cool that we do that, but cool that you have the experience that you have that you can kind of inform us more and and have us shift about kind of what's next. I'm like so both on fire and motivated by both your personal experience and where you are in the world. So um, do you have any final thoughts for us? Final thoughts, I would say for anybody that's listening, be encouraged, stay encouraged. Joy comes in the morning. You know, when I, like I said, when I wake up, I thank God for the things that I have. And, you know, when you have folks that you can trust, I want to continue to be that person that folks can trust and to know that there's no judgment in any circle, whether it's my friend circle, my professional circle, as long as we are, you know, being soldiers about getting work. I'm all for it. So I just look forward to anybody that's listening. If they want to reach out, let's connect because it's work to be done. And can you remind our listeners how they can get in touch with you? Of course. You can call me directly, 267-223-5631. I take all my own calls. I am my own manager. My email address is the T-H-E social S-O. C-I-A-L, impact, I-M-P-A-C-T, cafe, C-A-F-E, at gmail.com. My Instagram is my name, Erica, E-R-I-C-K-A, middle initial L, and my last name, Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T. Um, and what I did today was I wrote a book to myself for my 31st birthday called Grace and Mercy, Prayers and Poems. Mm, um, what I did was on my Instagram, I made a link on my link tree so folks can uh, hop on and get a free copy, a free Kindle copy. It's important. Just check this out. I've got some some amazing pictures in here from when I was a kid, pictures that people probably have never seen of me. So I'm actually just looking forward to sharing my story as much as I can with the world and encouraging someone, especially a parent that may you're going through a rough time with your child, you know, remember that you were a kid at some point in time too. So Erica, what advice do you have for other folks who have been through those rough times as you have? You can heal through your trauma. You got to have folks around you that have healed as well. You know what it looks like on the other side. And I feel like I'm a person that talks, and shares transparently um, about the, the one side versus the other side, but mostly talking about coming through it. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. You're going to feel lonely. You're going to feel, why me? But that's what makes you go from being a victim to a survivor to becoming a warrior. Um, and that's it. I'm a warrior. You are. Do you want to let us out with a poem? Um, Since I just discovered that you're also a poet, you've been holding back. 
I just met you this um, week. But. No poem, no poem, but I will tell you this, okay. that I had the joy uh, on my Facebook Live with you, Rita, um, doing my podcast in the home that I was first put out of when I was 18 years old. So this was part of when I talk about healing through your trauma. This is real. 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, and now I'm back. So that's really a poem in itself is that only, only time can tell. Erica, thank you for your generosity in being with us today and being willing to be as raw and vulnerable and real as you were. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.